The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, Part 2, The Rebirth, The Middle Ages. The Dark Ages. Sometime after the fall of Rome, we come to the Dark Ages. Most of Europe was decentralized. It was rural, it was parochial. Life was reduced to the laws of nature. The powerful ruled, while the powerless looked only to survive. There was no sense of history or progress. Superstition and fatalism prevailed. A belief in the eminent end of the world was common every century. You can get a fair approximation of European life in the dark and early Middle Ages by looking at some of the developing nations of the world today. Although you would still have to take away all of the signs of the past thousand years of technological development to really get an accurate picture. Alcuin, Charlemagne's head scholar, 735 to 804, is one of the few names that comes down to us from this period. Other than his Christianity, a glimmer of his view of reality can be gleaned from this quote. What is man? The slave of death, a passing wayfarer. How is man placed? Like a lantern in the wind. Nevertheless, Charlemagne, 768 to 814, provided a political unity, and the Pope took a religious unity, and so a new era slowly began. Eventually, the Church took over Europe, and the Pope replaced the Emperor as the most important figure. By 1200, the Church would own a third of the land area of Europe. The power of the Church and its common creed meant enormous pressures to conform, backed up by fear of supernatural sanctions. But on the positive side, the papacy helped to establish stability and ultimately prosperity. We will now turn to what are called the Middle Ages, roughly the period from 1000 to 1400 AD. The universities. Universities developed out of monastery and cathedral schools, really what we would call elementary schools, but were attended by adolescents who were taught by monks and priests. The first was in Bologna, established in 1088. In these schools and universities, students began, always with the ever-present threat of flogging, they began with the trivium, Grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Grammar is the art of reading and writing. It focused on the Psalms and other parts of the Bible, and also on the Latin classics. Rhetoric is what we would now call a speech class, the art of public speaking and persuasion. And logic was a system for argumentation and reasoning. The word trivium originally referring to grammar, rhetoric, and logic, 
is, of course, also the origin of the word trivia, the stuff that beginners start with. Beyond that, they would study the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. All together, these seven subjects, grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, make up the seven liberal arts. The word liberal refers to libertas, freedom. The liberal arts were the arts of the free man, the man of property. They were in contrast to the practical arts, those practiced by the working poor. The Problem of Universals The major philosophical issue of this time was the nature of universals. Now, this concerns the meaning of a word. What, in the real world, does a word refer to? Now, this is easy with proper nouns, like names. Todd, for example, refers to, uh, well, me, uh, right here, uh, me, myself. But what about other, more general words? What does the word cat refer to? How about dog? You may be thinking about your own dog. I'm thinking about my dog, who happens to be sitting next to me as I'm recording this podcast. But what does the word dog in general refer to? Now, this is by no means a new issue. But scholars of the Middle Ages had to begin without the benefit of all of those wonderful Greek sources. St. Anselm of Canterbury, 1033-1109, to was a Neoplatonist. He is best known for his efforts at coming up with a logical proof of God's existence. This is the famous ontological proof. Since we can think of a perfect being, he must exist, because perfection implies existence. For instance, which is better, a million dollars that you could imagine having or a million dollars that you actually possess. Isn't the real million dollars better? So a good thing that exists is better than a good thing that exists only in the imagination. Therefore, if we're talking about a perfect being, which is more perfect, a perfect being which is imaginary or a perfect being which truly exists? As we've established, perfection that exists is better than perfection that does not exist or exists only in imagination. Therefore, since we can think of a perfect being, and that perfect being is clearly not us, then the perfection must exist since perfection implies existence. Now, in regard to the question of universals, St. Anselm was a proponent of realism, and realism was Plato's perspective. There is a real universal or ideal out there somewhere. It's what Plato called the realm of the forms. So there is a real or an ideal to which a word refers. So dog does not refer to your dog or my dog, but to the ideal 
dog that exists somewhere in the realm of the universals, or the realm of the forms. Now, this idea fits beautifully with Christian beliefs. If humanity is real, beyond being just the collection of individual human beings, then we can talk about a human nature, including, for instance, the idea of an original sin. If there was no such thing as humanity, if each person were a law unto him or herself, well, then we could hardly lay the sins of Adam and Eve on anyone but Adam and Eve. Likewise, if God is a real universal, then there's no logical incongruity about saying that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once. Now, mind you, this argument is not without problems. For example, the problem of the ultimate universal, all, A-L-L, all, all must be logically greater than God, because all would have to include both God and creation. But Christianity says that God and creation are separate and fundamentally different. Anselm's motto was Augustine's motto. I believe in order that I may understand. It brings to mind that quote about, we have to pass the bill in order to find what's in it. I believe in order that I may understand. Faith is an absolute requirement. Faith is the standard for all thinking. Thinking which does not conform to the truth revealed by God, either through the church or later through the scripture, must by necessity be wrong. However, once one believes in the truth revealed by God, then everything else, all further thinking, can be filtered through that lens. Nominalism Rosalinus of Amorica in Brittany, 1050 to 1121, was the founder of nominalism, another approach to universals. A universal, he said, is just a flatus vocus, a vocal sound, a word. Only individuals actually exist. Words and the ideas they represent refer to nothing, really, and this is quite compatible with materialism and empiricism, but not really to Christianity. And nominalism is also not without problems. If words are nothing but air, then reason and philosophy, which is the manipulation of those words, is nothing but blowing air, a fact that many students, in fact, believe. Now, that blowhard analogy includes, of course, the reasoning that it took to come to that nominalist conclusion. Regarding the church, however, nominalism means that the church is nothing more than the people who compose it, and religion is just what those individuals think. And if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit then we cannot be monotheists claiming belief in only one God. 
Abelard. Peter Abelard, 1079-1142, was a student of both Anselm and Rosalinus. Abelard was a brilliant thinker and speaker and a priest of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. He became a popular teacher at the University of Paris. In 1117, Peter Abelard met a 16-year-old girl named Heloise. An orphan, she was being raised by her uncle Fulbert. She was particularly intelligent as well as beautiful. And so her uncle asked Abelard if he would tutor her in exchange for room and board. Well, you may already be thinking that you know how this is going to end. And you would be right. Abelard himself commented that this was like entrusting a lamb to a wolf. Abelard's focus in his teaching suffered a bit. He was more likely to compose love poems than lectures. Eventually, Heloise became pregnant, and they had a son, a son they named Astrolabe, a name which I think would still get you teased even in the Middle Ages. Now, Uncle Filbert was furious, but Abelard promised to marry Heloise if Fulbert would just keep the marriage a secret. The only way he could become a priest while married would be for her to become a nun, which wasn't acceptable to either of them. She was willing, however, to be his mistress, and he convinced her to marry him in secret. Well, Uncle Fulbert remained upset by all of this, and eventually he'd sent some men to teach Abelard a lesson. They cut off his genitals. Now, the people of Paris, being French, even in the Middle Ages, had complete sympathy with their hero, Abelard. But Abelard himself was mortified. Heloise became a nun, and Abelard became a monk in order to pay for their sins. However, they still continued to exchange passionate letters for many years. Abelard was, however, persuaded to continue teaching and writing arguing, among many other things, that the Trinity referred not to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but to God's love, His wisdom, and His power. Abelard began to irritate some of the people with power within the church. In fact, the Pope issued an order condemning Abelard to perpetual silence and confining him to a monastery, which was the usual penalty for heresy at this time. On his way to Rome to defend himself, Abelard died. He was 63 years old. Heloise convinced his abbot to bury him at her convent. And 12 years later, she died and was buried next to him. Abelard invented sic et non, yes and no, pros and cons, in a book by the very same name, sic et non, is a Socratic method that lays the arguments of two opposing points of view side by side for comparison. Abelard is very much the rationalist, and he made his motto, I understand in order to believe. Abelard believed that the truth of faith and reason must still agree, as did all of his teachers. But reason has precedence. It is faith that has to adapt, 
i.e., the church must reevaluate the meanings of its teachings when they fail to measure up to reason. For Abelard, ethics is a matter of conduct, inspired by a good heart, a good will, and good intentions. If you have a good conscience, you can do no wrong. You can't sin. You can only be mistaken. He had said, for example, that when the Romans killed Christians, including Christ himself, they were only acting according to their conscience, and therefore were not guilty of sin. He is, however, best known for conceptualism, Abelard's attempt to synthesize nominalism and realism. Although the thing and its name both have a reality of their own, universals exist in the mind as ideas. And those ideas refer to groups of things which are represented by words. The mind creates abstractions out of real things by detecting similarities. So the meaning of the word dog is the mental abstraction that we created by looking at individual dogs and noting that they all have four legs, fur, ears, two eyes with pupils, they bark, etc., etc. And this is still an example of perspective in modern cognitive psychology. This answer to the question of universals is, as you might have guessed by now, still not without its problems. Notice that we are assuming that we can use words like legs, ears, eyes. But what do they refer to? They can only refer to the mental abstractions that we make of individual legs, ears, eyes. So how can you tell if you're looking at a leg? Well, it's a mental abstraction that we make out of flesh, with a hip joint and a knee and a foot at the end. But then, what is a knee? Well, a knee is... And the answers go on and on through reductions. But at what point do we finally reach a unique thing? The Moslems the Near Eastern and North African remnants of the Roman Empire fell as far as any other parts of that former empire. Muhammad, 570 to 632, brought Islam, a word meaning surrender, into the world, and Islam spread like wildfire, both by persuasion and by the sword. So with Islam and reunification under a series of Arab caliphates, the dark of the Dark Ages lifted a bit earlier there. In Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, even Seville in the newly conquered Spain, scholars turned to the ancient Greeks and began again to discover reason and observation. The security, stability, wealth, and relative tolerance of their new society inspired them to produce literature including philosophy, that by the millennium nearly equaled that of ancient Greece. Avicenna of Baghdad, also known as Ibn Sina, 980-1037, was one of these great thinkers. Thoroughly familiar with Aristotle, 
Avicenna was nonetheless a Neoplatonist and a Gnostic, as it would seem that all Muslim scholars must be in order to maintain their Muslim identity. Generally, Avicenna felt that faith and reason could not conflict, as the Christian thinkers had also concluded previously. But he hints at heresy by suggesting that such items of faith as the physical paradise after death that Muhammad promised to his followers were necessary in order to win over the masses, but were just stories to the mature believer. Averos of Cordova, also known as Ibn Rushd, 1126-1198, is the greatest of the Islamic philosophers. He began as a lawyer and was chief justice of Seville and later of Cordova. He was also a physician and served as the court physician in Marrakesh. He was the first to recognize that if a person survived smallpox, that person would be immune thereafter. He described for the first time the purpose of the retina in the eye. He wrote an encyclopedia of medicine used in both Muslim and Christian universities. Averos begins, of course, with God. God is what sustains reality. God is the order of the universe. But, he says, creation is just a myth. The universe has always existed and will always continue to exist. The human mind, Averos said, has two aspects. First, there is passive intellect. This composes the potential for thinking, and it carries the details that make one personality different from another, both physically and psychologically. The passive intellect is part of the body and dies with the body. But there is also an active intellect, which in fact energizes the passive intellect. The active intellect is the same in each person. And it is the only part of us that survives death. It is, in fact, God. But Islam's openness to philosophy was not to last. The emir of Baghdad ordered Averos' books burned. And the emir's example was followed by other leaders all the way back to Averos' homeland of Spain. The world of Islam had achieved what the Christian world failed to achieve— complete domination by religion. By means of Muslim Spain and Sicily, Avicenna and Averos and others would come to inspire, in turn, the Christian scholars of the new universities of Europe. These scholars would consume the writings of the Greek, Jewish, and Arabic scholars. St. Thomas. In the late Middle Ages, the 1200s, Aristotle excited a lot of thought in the monks and the scholars of the universities. These Neo-Aristotelians were called schoolmen or scholastics. By studying Aristotle and his Arab and Jewish commentators, they learned to think more logically, but their goals were still essentially theological. The scholastic par excellence was St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. 
Of German stock, Thomas was the son of the Count of Aquino, a town between Rome and Naples. Thomas went to the University of Naples, where there was great interest in Arab and Jewish philosophers, and, of course, in Aristotle. Thomas became a monk of the Dominican order and went to Paris to study. His mother was so upset by this turn of events that she sent his brothers to kidnap him and bring him back home. Contrary to what you may assume, families were seldom happy when their sons or daughters went off to become monks or nuns. They often grieved for them as if they had died, because in fact, by becoming a monk or a nun and maintaining celibacy, this meant that that son or daughter would no longer be able to sire children, carry on the family name or the family tradition. Well, Thomas escaped from his brothers, and he continued his studies in Paris and elsewhere. He was known to be a very pious and modest man, with no ambitions for church promotions, unlike the ambitious Abelard. He wrote a great deal, but he's best known for the Summa Theologia, usually just called the Summa. It's a work of 21 volumes, in which he uses Abelard's Si et Non to reconcile Aristotle and Christianity. Thomas believed that the soul is the form of the body, as Aristotle had said, and the soul gives the body life and energy, but the soul and the body are totally linked together. Now, this flies in the face of the Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas of the Church Fathers, and it irritated the mystical Franciscan monks most of all. Thomas added that the soul without the body would have no personality, because individuality comes from matter, not spirit, which represents the universal in us. For this reason, resurrection of the body is crucial to the idea of personal immortality. Averroes' idea that only an impersonal soul survives death was, in other words, quite wrong. Thomas saw five faculties of the soul. Number one, the vegetative faculty. This is involved in food, drink, sex, growth. Number two is the sensitive faculty. This refers to our senses, plus the common sense that binds all sensations together. Three, the locomotor faculty, which permits movement. Four, the appetitive faculty, which consists of our desire and will. And five, the intellectual faculty, thought and reason. For St. Thomas, reason or intellect is man's greatest treasure. It is reason which raises him above the animals. In keeping with conceptualism, Thomas felt that it was the intellect that abstracts the idea the form or universal, from its individual appearance. So that, even though day-to-day -day experience can tell us about the particulars of reality, only reason or intellect can lead us to universal laws of the physical or the human world. Ultimately, we do need direct, intuitive knowledge of God. Reason depends on sensory experience, and sensory experience is of matter, not spirit. So reason, like all things human, 
is imperfect. Reason cannot comprehend the perfection that is God. Faith, therefore, is our ultimate refuge. Nevertheless, Thomas insisted faith and reason do not conflict, since God would not have made a world that did not ultimately match up with revealed truth. In spite of his obvious brilliance, St. Thomas, like all philosophers of his age, was a man of his time. For example, he was as chauvinistic as any of his predecessors regarding women. He considered women inferior by nature and by God's design. He saw them as a serious threat to the moral progress of men. He also developed a significant portion of the Summa to angels and demons, which he thought were every bit as real as anything else. Among other things, he believed that the angels moved the planets, that they had no bodies, and that they moved instantaneously, and that each and every person had his or her very own guardian angel. His ideas threatened many in the church, most especially the Franciscans. His works emphasized reason too much and faith too little. He put too much stock in pagans like Aristotle and Averroes. He taught that the soul and the body were unified. After his death at the age of 49, the Franciscans convinced the Pope to condemn him and his writings. But the Dominicans rallied to his defense, and in 1323, Thomas was canonized, becoming St. Thomas Aquinas. Incidentally, in 1879, Pope Leo VIII made Thomism the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. It is, with Marxism, Positivism, and Existentialism, one of the four most influential philosophies of the 20th century. The Beginning of the End of the Middle Ages the Franciscans, as I said, were the primary critics of St. Thomas. Roger Bacon, 1214-1294, a Franciscan monk and scientist, pointed out that reason does not actually need experience in order to have something to reason about. A hint of modern empiricism in the Middle Ages. But Thomas's severest critic was John Duns Scotus, 1265 to 1308. Scotus was a Franciscan monk and professor at Oxford, Paris, and Cologne. He believed that the authority of the church was everything. The will is supreme and the intellect subordinate to it. Although a conceptionalist, like Thomas, of the thing, of the idea, the name, he felt that the individual thing was the most real. And Scotus's student, William, would take that and run with it. William of Ockham in England, 1280 to 1347, was another Franciscan monk. Like Roger Bacon, he believed that without sensory contact with things, the universal is inconceivable. In fact, he said that universals are only names that we give groups of things. 
really a return to the nominalism of Rosalinus. William of Ockham is best known for the principle that is named for him, Ockham's razor. Now, the word razor may make you think of something that you would use to shave with, and you're actually not far off with that idea. You see, a razor is a sharp, incisive statement that cuts to the heart. And Occam's razor cuts to the heart saying, don't multiply causes needlessly. And that is usually interpreted to mean that the simplest explanation is the best. When there are two competing explanations, we prefer the one that has the fewer number of unproven assumptions. We prefer simplicity. In fact, Occam's razor is also known as the principle of parsimony or simplicity. Now, over time, Occam's razor came to mean, if you don't need a supernatural explanation, don't use it. The result of William's thinking is skepticism. Without universals, there are no generalizations, no categories, classifications, theories, laws of nature, so forth. All we have is an accumulation of facts about individual entities. Now, we'll see this again in the philosophy of David Hume. William Ockham, although he was a devout Christian, is often considered the turning point from the religious worldview of the Middle Ages to the scientific worldview of the Renaissance and the modern era. You could say that philosophy rested a while around this time, not for lack of ideas, but because of over a hundred years of troubles. First, there was the Great Famine in Europe from 1315 to 1317. The economy spiraled downward. Banks collapsed in the first few decades of the 1300s. And then the Hundred Years' War began in 1337. And do you remember how long the Hundred Years' War lasted? That's right, 120 years. The Black Death, a plague carried by fleas on rats, came from the Near East and killed over one-third of the population of Europe between 1347 and 1352. Peasant revolts in England, France, and elsewhere were cruelly suppressed between 1378 and 1382. And the church was split between two popes, one in Rome and one in Avignon, between 1378 and 1417. But these events horrible as they were, turned out to be temporary setbacks. And an even greater explosion of intellectual activity was about to begin. ¶¶